See you tonight. I'm glad you're here. I'm excited. Hope you're excited. Very. Very. So let's start our time in prayer. Father, thanks for uh, just a presence here, and we thank you, God, for your faithfulness. Because you are faithful, and uh, you are with us no matter what, and we thank you that you are God over every circumstance, over every situation. Uh, you are God uh, of the whole earth and the whole universe. And we thank you that we know you personally. And so we ask you tonight to lead us, to guide us. We pray, God, that you would anoint this teaching time. We ask, Father, that we would have an open heart, ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to us tonight. I ask you, God, that you would touch us. And I pray that we would be challenged tonight on a deep level. I I pray something on a heart level, a spirit level to really take place in our lives tonight, uh, that this wouldn't just be some kind of a mental exercise, but really and truly an exercise in spirit. And so we ask that you would uh, just speak, and I pray God would respond to you. Give you thanks. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to 1 Chronicles, chapter 11. If you need a Bible, grab one off the table. We have Bibles available. Reminder uh, for our podcast listeners that we have an interactive feature with Bible study, and that is through a website at www.speakpipe.com. That's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E. Dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word. You go there to that webpage, and there's a button that you can toggle, and you can leave us what would appear to be a voicemail. And we'd love to hear from you. could be just saying hi, or maybe you have a question about Bible study, or maybe you have a comment, or you just want to tell us where you're from. But we'd love to hear from you. could be something good God's doing in your life. So drop us a line. Uh, leave us a message, and we'll endeavor to play that at our next Bible study. First Chronicles, chapter 11. And I need a volunteer to read First Chronicles, chapter 11, and verse 41. Uriah the Hittite. Zabad, son of Ali. Thank you. All right, that was it. Yes. That was all there was to it. And uh, it's one of those lists of names that that we're always tempted to skip over when we're reading the Bible. And uh, this is a list of David's mighty men. And uh, it's the reason I didn't skip over it, because I was kind of interested as to who the mighty men were. And he'd gone through a process where they described, kind of in an outward fashion, from David, and he had three that were uh, particularly close to him, that were also uh, great warriors and people that he trusted. And then out from there, there were another two that had specific duties, uh, within what he had to do, and then there were the 30. And uh, then that list even expands a little bit more depending on where you read it. But uh, basically there was this small group of people uh, that were around David that he had uh, gathered together and that they had been with him from the start. Uh, they believed in the anointing that Samuel had anointed David with. They likely knew of him as a boy as being the one who killed Goliath. They likely knew that he was somebody that had been anointed by Samuel as king, but had not taken the throne yet, as Saul was still the king. 
and yet they could see what was going on. And I want you to just consider this for a second, that they had the vision to see what was happening with Saul and with his family. They had the vision to see what was going on in the kingdom. They had the vision to see where the kingdom was heading. They had the vision to see that David was anointed. And so what they did was that they took whatever they had. They took their livelihood. They took their lives. They took who they were. And they put it behind David. And they began to follow him. And they became his most devoted and most loyal followers that he had. Not only were they followers, not only were they disciples in a sense, but they were also the people that fought the battles. They were the people that went to war. They were the people that... God, in, in some ways, really anointed and really made strong to get out and do the things that needed to be done. And so they were the ones that did it. And there were exploits that are listed, say, for the three that were around David. And you look at just amazing feats that they did, the 30 all, uh, where it was more than implied that the 30 were also warriors like that, that... They were super brave. They went out and did supernatural things. They went out and there were people that God used. They went and there were people that God had brought to David for such a time as this. this was, these were the people that God had put around him. And they were his protectors. They were his defenders. They were his disciples. And they were the people that went to war when it was time to go to war. Now there were other people that also followed David. They had other people that were part of his army. Other people that were part of... The, the people that had gathered to him. We don't know how many were there, but there were plenty of them. But these were the 30. These were the closest. These are the ones that were as close to, to David as they're going to be. So, uh, listed among them was Uriah. His name means flame of God. And he was one of the mighty men that was listed among there, and so there were 30, and they were referred to in other places, and the words that are used to describe them, one of the words that are used to describe them are heroes. And that's when the word hero meant something. Alright? People weren't called heroes for doing their job. They were called heroes because they went above and beyond, and they exhibited heroic behavior. And so, if you need to change the definition, at least temporarily for this Bible study, I encourage you to do that. Because in our world today, we call people heroes that aren't really heroes. We call people heroes that do their job. We call people heroes that perform their function. We call people heroes that, that go about the thing that they agreed to do. Okay? And that, that's not a hero by definition. A hero goes beyond that. A hero is someone that exhibits bravery. A hero is someone that goes above and beyond what's expected of them and what they've agreed to do. And they, they do something more. And so I want you to suspend whatever it is that you've been taught about that, just for a few minutes. And think about a hero kind of in the old-fashioned way. And that old-fashioned way is, is above and beyond. That old-fashioned way is something that we aspire to be. Something that we aspire to do, maybe. Someone that we look at and is so far beyond what would be considered normal that they completely and utterly stand apart from the people that, and the normal people that are around us, and even ourselves. And, and so to have that kind of a view, that's who these guys were. They were respected because they earned it. They were listened to because they went out and they did it, and they did it above and beyond what they were doing. They, they had, had earned whatever authority they had around David. And, and they were respected because of who they were and the things that they actually went out and did. They were his worthies. Okay? His worthies. And, and he considered them worthy of honor. He considered them worthy of respect. He considered them worthy of trust. He considered them worthy to be in his inner circle. And, and the other people that were around them understood that they were great men who served with him. Great men. And so, they were men of honor. They were men who had laid down their lives for him. Now, I do want to say this because 
David being surrounded by these great men and these heroes, he could have easily lost sight of, of what was really going on here. But David always reckoned his success not as from the mighty men, but from who? God. From God, right. He always knew, and he always knew that any success that he had was from God. He knew that. They knew that. Everyone around him knew that. And I, and I want to just suggest to you that's one of the things that made him great. That's one of the things that made him heroes and made him great is that they understood that their success wasn't of their own strength, their success wasn't of their own knowledge, their success wasn't of their own skill, their success wasn't of their own intelligence, but their success was of God. And that came from the top all the way down. And so they served God and they served one another. You know, they followed David because David was in the battle too. David was a hero. In the true sense of the word. Any boy that's going to go out and stand up to a giant of a man and kill him with a slingshot and cut off his head with his own sword, that's a hero. That's a hero. He saved his nation from slavery to the Philistines. That is a hero. He risked his life to do it. And so these men were responding and he did many other great things, but they were responding to him. He set the tone, and then they followed after that. But again, who did David give all the credit to? Who was the success due to? God. And so they knew their success was also due to God. And so these men were loyal. And if you look at some of the stories about them, uh, I don't know if you remember, the, there was one in the Bible where David, uh, he just happened to say, oh, I'd love some water from a, a particular well. I don't know if you remember this story. He just said it in passing. Like, wow, that'd be really good if I had some water from this well. But he was overheard. And then the men that overheard him, part of this group overheard him say that. And they went down and risked their lives to get him water from a well. To bring it back to him so he could drink it. Which, if you know the story, he didn't drink it. He didn't drink it. But the fact that they would do that shows a certain depth of loyalty that they had for him. And they were with him from the start. Right? They were just with him from the start. They made their decisions and they were with him. And so, when Saul was after him, they were still with him. When Saul's armies were hunting him down like dogs and they were living in caves, they're still with him. When he went and he pretended to join the Philistines and pretended to be part of what they were doing, they were still with him. They grumbled about it. They didn't like it, but they were still with him. And so at every step of the way, and every time that they went and they did something, every peril that they faced, every enemy that came their way, anything that happened, that happened to come their way, either positive, negative, for their good, for their detriment, for their gain, for their loss, for whatever it was, however they, they could have chosen to see it, however that would have happened, or however they could have chosen to see it, for whatever way, the fact of the matter was, is that they were with him, and they were loyal to him. And we know that there were certain times in things that they did that these men did not agree with him. And, and I want to point out that uh, agreement and disagreement are normal parts of everyday life for human beings. Never in, in, in our existence do we ever expect everyone to agree on everything. It's impossible. People can pretend to agree, but they're not going to. Because there's differences of opinion, and there's different ways of seeing things, and there's different experience bases, and, and there's different ways of going about things. And we all know that. We all understand that. And not everyone's going to agree. That's why we talk and have conversations. Because different people have different ideas. I posted a sign on the, the door of the church today when I was there. I made my own little sign. And I stuck it on the door from the inside. And, I, and, it was a, and I'm not going to get it right because I don't have it in front of me, but it was a quote from Frederick Nietzsche. And it basically just said, it just said, that, that we don't do our youth any service. In fact, we do them a disservice 
when we tell them that they should only respect the opinions or they should more value more highly the opinions of those that agree than those that disagree. Okay, follow me? We're doing our youth a disservice by teaching them to value only the opinions that agree instead of valuing more the opinions that disagree. Because disagreement, and I don't know if you'll even understand what I'm saying in this day and age, but disagreement brings about wisdom. Different perspectives, different counsels bring about wisdom. And it's okay. We don't have to agree. We don't have to shame people that disagree with us into agreeing with us. And that's one thing about social media that is a horrible, horrible byproduct is that if you happen to disagree with the general vein of what people want you to think, they will shame you until you at least try or say you agree with them. They will publicly shame you to millions of people if they can. Because they will not accept the fact that you don't agree. Well, we need to accept the fact that we don't agree. That's what we need to do. We need to accept the fact that we're human beings and we're thinking and we should have some dialogue. Yes. I was telling somebody earlier, I was waiting for somebody to mention me. Oh, don't you know that that Frederick Nietzsche, I think he was an atheist or anti-God or something. (laughs) And I was going to just respond with Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, moron. Right? Wow. Yeah. So we know from what's recorded that they didn't always agree. They they weren't always in a complete lockstep with what he was doing or with, with decisions he was making, but that didn't change the fact they were loyal. You can be loyal and disagree. It just happens. Yeah, I'll tell you a secret. Me and June have been married for, I don't know, 30, whoa, three years? 33 years. And we don't agree on everything. Shocking. It's shocking, shocking, right? That somehow we coexist. (laughs) Yeah, we coexist in disagreement. And but you know that doesn't affect loyalty and love and sacrifice and life together. And so I, I want to say all of that because that that was true of this group also. And they they understood something that as they strengthened David and his kingdom, as they strengthened David and his kingdom. They understood something is that they strengthened themselves and their interests. Because that's who they had aligned with. And so, once they made that decision, once they pledged their, their fealty, once they pledged their loyalty to Him, once they began this life together, they understood that as they made Him stronger, His kingdom stronger, they were actually strengthening themselves and their own interests. What do I mean? Their families. Yeah, their futures and who they were. They they understood that his advancement was their advancement. And I want you to think about your investment into Jesus right now. I want you to think about your investment into the kingdom. Because there's something that is a principle here that is also a principle now. And that is that as we, as we, strengthen the kingdom of God, as we pour into the kingdom of God, as we give ourselves into that kingdom. I mean, I'm talking once you've made your decision, and your decision is made, and this is where you're at, and this is what you're doing, the more you pour in, the more you strengthen that kingdom, the more you strengthen the interests of Jesus in the world that we live in, the more you're going to strengthen your own interests and advancement. Period. And and sometimes I know that's hard to see, but it, it's so true. Yeah. It's so true. And I'm going to tell you something else. You don't always agree with Jesus. You don't. 
I'm just telling you. You can tell me you do, and I know you're lying about it. But it doesn't mean you're not loyal. It doesn't. And it doesn't mean you're not living in love, and it doesn't mean you're not living in, in, in that kind of a fealty to Him. Because those things can coexist. And I've told you this before, there's a real trick involved in this. You know what the trick is? To, to get yourself so that you can begin to have yourself come around and come into agreement eventually with what He's doing and what He's saying. There's a real trick to that. And there's a happy place to be in. Okay, when you find that. But there may come times where you just don't come around. That's okay. That's okay. There are times that the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was doing. And, and they didn't understand why he was doing things. And, and I want you to say that's a nice way of saying they didn't agree with it. Okay? John chapter 6, perfect example. I use it all the time. Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. They think he's talking about cannibalism. They don't know what he's talking about. They're standing there dumbfounded. They're the last ones. Everybody else ran off. And he looked at them. He's like, you're going to go too? Their answer did not in any way indicate that they understood what he was talking about. In any way. Or agree with what he was saying. In no way. Their simple answer was, well, we don't really have anywhere else to go, so we'll stay. That was it. That was it. You know, or, or Jesus trying to tell them that the Son of Man is going to be arrested and He's going to die and on the third day He's going to raise again. They ignored all of that. Because what happened when they came to arrest Jesus? Peter drew a sword and... Cut off his ear. Yeah, what was that guy's name? They cut off his ear? Come on now. Let's try Malchus. Alright, maybe. Cut off his ear... You can look me up on that because I ain't 100%. If I was on Jeopardy, that would be my answer, final answer. But, oh, that would be my question. Who is Malchus? Who is Malchus? Yeah. yeah. All right, that would be my question. Anyway. Ding. Ding. All right. So, so they weren't always in agreement. And, and it's okay. Okay, we can still be loyal and we can still be faithful. We can still love and be loved. But understand this, agree or don't, the advancement of Jesus and His kingdom is our advancement also. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. And so, in, in some ways, and I'm not saying this is a motivation, I'm just saying it's a byproduct. In some ways, we move forward in Jesus, we understand we're moving forward in our lives. We understand we're serving Jesus. We're, we're pouring into the strengthening of His kingdom. Well, we're pouring into our interests also and our own advancement. Period. So, we gain in our support of Jesus and His kingdom. We do. I like that. And so, this was... These mighty men, I mean, this was a tight-knit group. They lived together. They were tight-knit. And so they did things together. They lived closely. Those of you that have ever been on a missions trip, you learn to love and hate everything about one another. It's hard to hide. You might even see people in their underwear. I mean, it's, it's whatever it is, all right? That's how it goes. You see more of somebody than you really want to, but it's okay. It's fine. <laughs> You're welcome, yeah. <laughs> so you live closely. I mean, and, and I'm talking about that's a couple weeks, maybe a week or two. But I mean, you think about years, you're living together with people. How close-knit do you get? Pretty close-knit. All right? That, that's what happened. And not only that, they were all on the lamb. They're all on the lamb together. I mean, so they're wanted by the law. And so you got people chasing after them. They're going from place to place. You know, so that, that draws people together. They were hiding together. That draws people together. They were running together. That draws people together, right? But it draws people together. And it's no accident. You think about, like, a place like China. All right, communist Chami China, the Chicoms. All right, so all right, they had the, the brilliant idea. They're following the pillars of communism. We're going to outlaw religion. Great idea, you think? 
So you shut it down, you kick all the missionaries out, you tell them it's illegal, you burn all the Bibles, you get rid of everything, and so you really got them where you want them, and boom, you take care of the problem. No. Because what happened was, is that they did all of those things, and they forced people who were Christians into hiding. They forced them into a tight-knit group who lived closely together, who were wanted by the law, who were in hiding, who were running, and who were fighting together. And what happens? The church explodes underground. And all of a sudden there's millions of believers. That's what happens. And so for whatever reasons, and you can look at it any way you want, but God took a situation that we see in the Old Testament and we see in the New Testament is that when you persecute God's people and you force them into these kind of situations, what happens is, is that they prosper. They prosper. And so, there it is. So these guys, they were forced into this situation, they were forced into this circumstance, and they were prospering in it. They were actually growing. They were bringing in new people that were becoming part of their army. They were bringing in new people that, yeah, we'll go on, you know, we'll run from the law with you. We'll help you fight your enemies. And they pledged their lives and their fortunes and whatever they had to follow in after David and to the advancement of his kingdom. And they did those things. And so not only were they thriving, not only were they prospering, but they were bringing other people and they were in growing mode. Yeah, same with the early church. Early church had a great good growth spurt right from the beginning. But the thing that really helped the early church the most was persecution. They got scattered. All right, They were hanging out in Jerusalem. Everybody's happy in Jerusalem. Boom, we'll persecute them. They all scattered and the gospel went with them. Wherever they went. Because that's how it works. Roman Empire, same thing. In Rome, boom. Persecution. Driven underground. What happened? The church begins to prosper and grow. So that within 300 years, they took over the empire. That's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. So, we have enough history to understand this. We have enough history to understand this principle of what happens when you persecute God's people. And so David is an awesome example with his mighty men. And they were distinguished, and I want to say this one more time, they were distinguished, they were brave, they were devoted, they were full of valor, and full of renown among all of David's officers. That's who they were. Okay, so be encouraged by all that. Be encouraged by all that. Because now I want to speak to your heart. Because <laughs> what does the verse say? What does the verse say? Be encouraged because now I'm going to get ill. <laughs> what did the verse say we read? Uriah the Hittite, the son of Eli. Yeah, Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men. Now just think about that for a second. He is one of the distinguished, the brave, the devoted, full of valor, renowned among all of David's officers. He's a hero. He was a hero. And this is the same Uriah that David had killed. And so, I, I went through all that to bring you to this point. That Uriah the Hittite was not a stranger to David. When you read that story about Bathsheba, when you read the story about David snatching up Uriah's wife Bathsheba, getting her pregnant, and then so then he brought Uriah back from the front line. You remember the story, right? Yeah. And so this is one of his mighty men. This is one of 30. This guy had been with him from the start. This guy was loyal, as loyal can be. And that explains to you his behavior, right, in the story, if you remember the story, why he did the things that he did. Because, so David brought him back. So what was David's plan? You know, because Bathsheba comes comes up, David, you know, back to David after a while. I'm pregnant. So, <laughs> like, ooh, all right, all right, all right, all right. So, 
He brings Uriah back from the front line, right? And he's like, all right, Uriah, got your back, take a rest, go be with your wife. You know, do what husband and wives do. Don't do it, right? Did you understand that one? That was was the international language. So, (laughs) so he brings him back, and and he's like, "All right, well, go ahead." And 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 Uriah, this explains the behavior, though. Think about Uriah's answer was no. I won't do it. And so he slept on out in front of David's door at the palace all night. David's like, why don't you, you know, go be with your family? He's like, well, my brothers are in tents at the battle on the front line, and I'm supposed to, you know, go home in the comfort of my own home and be with my wife. He's like, I won't do it. I won't do it. And do you see the loyalty there? Do you see the... The the understanding that they were all in the same boat. Do you understand the the fidelity that's involved with that? That that he wouldn't even think of doing something like that. And so then David brings him in and he feasts him and gives him some wine and all that. He feels all right. Well, you know, we'll get him more, you know, kind of greased up. Maybe he'll go home then. And so he does all that and still doesn't go home. He still stays and he sleeps in the same place. Because he wasn't going to do it. And so, David ends up giving him a, a note. And he sends him, and the note was basically his death warrant. He has him carry his own death warrant back. And they put him in the front of the line, and they pull back on him, and he dies. So he had him killed. Now, what happened to David? What happened to him? He reaped that sin. He did afterwards, but why did he do this? So he did what he wanted. Right, but why? What was the real problem with all of this? What was the real problem? He what what? Where was David when he saw Bathsheba? He wasn't with the men. He wasn't. Yeah, he was at the castle, right, or the whatever he lived in. He was at the the palace. Right in springtime when kings go off to war. In springtime when kings go off to war, David was at his palace. There's the problem. David disengaged himself from what they were all doing. And when he disengaged himself from what they were all doing, he lost the bond with his people. Alright? And this may be more of a study in leadership than anything else, but I want you to hear it that the big problem started when David wasn't with his people. And he lost that bond. He lost the connection. And so, everything else happened that happened. And David reaped the consequences of his actions. His son died as a result of his actions. And he knew it. He knew it. I mean, this is later on in the story. If you want to read some of this, uh, somebody look at 2 Samuel 11, 3. Let's just look at it real quick. Second Samuel 11, 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said... Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So he knew who she was. All right, so I want to point that out. Somebody look at verse 27. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. All right, so that was after Uriah was killed. And Bathsheba went through a time of mourning. And so then David, after she was done mourning, went and snatched her up and made her his wife. And she bore that son. Anybody know who that son was? The son that David fathered? No? Bathsheba's son? Well, eventually Solomon. It was Solomon. 
Not the one who died. Not the one who died. This one. But she bore him Solomon. Right. Yeah. And so it's kind of interesting that that this would be the union that would carry on the line. Of all the unions that David had, you think about... (laughs) (laughs) That there were choices, okay? Well, I don't think, though, that there's any accident that this was the choice. And that she would be the mother of Solomon. I don't don't think it's any accident of that. Because there's something really despicable about this story, (laughs) which makes it all the more redemptive. And and I wanted to emphasize the, the beginning of this about Uriah to speak to how despicable this is. That the real issue here is an issue of loyalty. The real issue is an issue of fidelity toward David's mighty man, Uriah. Because Uriah had given everything. Uriah had given up his, his whole, everything that he was in order to serve David, to follow David, and to put his life on the line for David. For all of those years that they were running from Saul, they were going cave to cave, they were fighting for the Philistines, they were doing all of these things, and Uriah was there the whole time. But the fact that David that David could send that man to his death, that is the despicable part of the story. We want to make this story about a lot of other things, but that is the despicable part of the story. It really is. And the fact that he did that is the real problem. That was the real problem. And and so, the rest of the story, as far as the thing that David had to bear uh, through the death of his son out of this situation. The rest of the story is that another son that he was born from the same woman would then become the king of Israel. There is something redemptive about it. And people want to take David and throw him under the bus and keep throwing him under the bus for different things All right, for this particular act. But it appears that God forgave it, and then redeem the situation. Somebody look at 1 Kings 15, 5. 1 Kings 15, 5. Because David did not, because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Alright. So what's that description tell you? <laughs> right, and it's kind of interesting that it was like all the days of his life, all the things, all that he was, following after God, doing all the things he was supposed to do, except, <laughs> except in the case, in the case of, but who's the problem? Uriah the Hittite. What's the problem? It was his loyalty. It wasn't simple murder. Okay? Which which that explains more of it. I mean, if you read like Psalm 53, isn't that the 53rd Psalm where he's repenting of... Was that 53 or 51? I can't remember. Where he's repenting of this. The thing he's repenting of is the blood guiltiness upon his hands. Because he sent that man to his death. 51. 51? And if you look at it, Psalm 51, you see what he's repenting of and understand it. You understand what he's repenting of here. And it was a despicable thing. It really was. So, no matter how despicable we look at this, and it was, David paid the price for it, and then redemption came. Can you accept that? Can you accept it? That there was a price to be paid, the price was paid, and then redemption came. Can we accept that? 
Okay. Yeah. I, and we need to. Because it's an understanding of who God is. It is an understanding of how big His grace is, how big His mercy is, and of who He is. If you know the story also of David, when his son was dying, he went and he prayed and he fasted. And he just prayed and he prayed and prayed. And then they finally came up to him they, after the, the boy died, the baby died. And they came up to him and they said, hey David, um, your son's dead. He's like, alright. He got up, dusted himself off, and went about his life. And they, this, to the point, they were so shocked by his reaction. Like, well, you know, they, they questioned him about it. He's like, well, it's done. That was it. And so, I wonder if, if we in our lives could maybe come to a point in our life where we could say, it's done, and brush ourselves off and move on. Because, you know, it's, it's highly unlikely, and I, I don't want to speak for you because I, I don't know, but it's probably highly unlikely you'll do something as despicable as David did. I mean, that's like, that's like somebody who's given their lives to protect you, and you just turn on them and have them killed. Anybody here? Oh, never mind. I am <laughs> gonna say, I'm gonna say that it's highly unlikely that any of us have done anything that despicable. Really? I mean, we might have done some despicable things, but not that despicable. But when it came right down to it, he got up, brushed himself off, and it was done. And I want to encourage you to be a people that can do that. Because here was a guy that knew God. Here was a guy that was a man after God's own heart. Here was a guy that loved God with all his heart. And as that verse that was just read, he lived all his days of his life. He served God. He loved God. God loved him. Everything was great. Except for the case of Uriah the Hittite. Because that was the truth. But that did not end the life of David. Or his relationship with God. Because he got up from that, he dusted himself off, and he went about his business. And we don't have any record of any mistake being made like that ever again. By David. Did he live a perfect life? No. Probably not. But good enough that he got a good write-up. <laughs> Except for Uriah. But <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. Okay, let's look at uh, James. So we're going to end up. James chapter 1. And I will say this, that God really values faithfulness. I believe that. And I believe faithfulness covers a multitude of sins. And I know that's not in the Bible, but I really believe that for a lot of reasons. Uh, but I really believe that as we're faithful to God, to His people, that He really, really honors that. And I think it's really important. And that's why this particular sin of David was so bad. It's because he broke faithfulness with a man who was completely faithful to him. He broke faithfulness to a man who had, had numerous times given his life, been willing to give his life for him. He broke uh, that relationship with him, loyalty with him. Uh, with a man who had shown him honor and was a real hero and someone that gave everything for him. That's why I was so bad. And yet even that God forgave. Even that. Even that God brought him to a place of restoration. Even that God was able to redeem. Because not only was the next king of Israel through that line, through Bathsheba, but ultimately, who was through that line? Jesus. Solomon to go right down the line, right to Jesus. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> Ultimate redemption. Okay, James. Can I have that? For chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. 
Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. All right, thank you. Now, I'm going to say this so that you understand, hopefully. Temptation isn't the problem. In fact, your own evil desires, they're not the problem either. Because we all have them. Now, how do I know temptation is not the problem? Because Jesus was tempted in all points, like we are, all points, all points, like we are yet without sin. And you can fill in that blank. All points. All right? So you think about temptation. You think about temptation that you would not admit in front of people. Something you're tempted with that you would not, or you would really, really have trouble admitting in front of people. Jesus was tempted in that point. Is that crazy? Is that crazy? <laughs> that, that thing that you're ashamed of because you're even tempted in it, Jesus was tempted in that point. He was. Because temptation is not the problem. Temptation is not the problem. And temptation comes from things that you desire. So, it's not, not even the problem. Those things are not the problem. The problem comes with what you do with that temptation. The problem comes with how you entertain that temptation. The problem comes when you, you're in a position to actually succumb, to actually give in to it. That's the problem. We all are tempted. We all have desires. We all have things going on in our hearts and our lives that are darker than others. We do. And that's a fact. And Jesus can fully and completely understand that in our lives because He was tempted at all points like we are yet without sin. Because again, what was David's problem? Really, ultimately, way from the very start, the fact that he had... Desires? Nope. The fact that he was tempted? Nope. What was the real problem? He acted on it. How could he act on it? Because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Because in the springtime, that's when kings go out to war. But it was the springtime and David was at the palace. If David had been out to war, there would have been no Bathsheba problem. Okay? been no Bathsheba problem. And there would have been another way God would have worked that line out. Alright? But as it, was, as it was, he was where he was. As it was, he had certain desires that he had. As it was, he saw something that really caught his eye about one of those desires. As it was, he was tempted to go do something about it. As it was, he acted on that temptation. He did something about it. And as, he was, as it was, all of this led him to betraying one of the closest and dearest and most loyal friends that he had. That's a problem. That's the problem. And so the lesson we learned from that is this, that we have desires, we have temptations, and we need to learn how to manage our lives better. Alright? That's what we need to do. What do I mean by that? I mean, keep yourself out of situations. Keep yourself out of situations. Keep yourself out of those those opportunities and those opportune times where the devil comes and he tempts. Keep yourself out of situations where you act on those kind of things. Am I saying you're ever going to be perfect? No. What I'm telling you is to use a little bit of wisdom in your life. Use a little bit of wisdom. Where are you supposed to be? Be there. <laughs> what are you supposed to be doing? Get doing it. Temptation will still come. But you can mitigate some of that. Temptation still comes, but you know what? You can put yourself in a better position to handle it. Temptation still comes, but you know what? You can place yourself in a stronger spot so that you don't fall into it as easily. You can. You can. And I don't need to sit here and tell you how to do that. You can figure that out. Alright? 
All I'm telling you is you're supposed to be somewhere, be there. You're supposed to be doing something, do it. What time, well, what do you mean, Andy? Well, what if you got a prayer time? Your prayer time's from what? 10 to 11 at night? What should you be doing from 10 to 11 at night? Praying. Praying. Do what you're supposed to do. Alright? Because it is that spot where we're not doing what we're supposed to do. It's that spot where we're not where we're supposed to be. It's that spot where we find ourselves kind of in that no man's land of disobedience. That temptation comes so much stronger and so much easier to give in to. So you can put yourself in a stronger position just by doing what you're supposed to do and being where you're supposed to be. I know those aren't super wise words, but hopefully that makes sense to you. Because the bottom line is this, we have someone that understands us. His name is Jesus. And He is constantly looking for ways to redeem you and redeem me, if we'll let Him. If we'll let Him. And and so He's looking for a way to redeem whatever it is that's happened in your life. Did you fall into sin because you succumb to you're going to succumb to that temptation? All right. Well, you know what? He can redeem that. Get up, brush yourself off, and let's go. Let's get back at it. Let's get back at it. Let him redeem that in your life. That's what he wants to do. If you will allow it. But you've got to let it go. You've got to brush that off. You've got to get up from that place. You've got to step out of that pit. You've got to get moving in the direction you're supposed to be moving in. And as you move in the direction you're supposed to be moving in and get things moving again, there's a redemption that God wants to bring into your life. And I know that flies in the face of people tell you you're supposed to wallow in it or you're supposed to, oh, make sure you feel bad enough about it and, you know, kind of wallow. You don't think David felt bad about that? You don't think David had any remorse or had any regret? I mean, read Psalm 51. Read it. He knew what he did. He knew it was wrong. He knew he betrayed a friend. He knew that he betrayed someone that was loyal to him. He knew he was disloyal to a man that was loyal and willing to give his life for him. Greater love has no man than this than he laid down his life for his friend. Uriah could have had no greater love for David. Had him killed. He knew what he did was wrong. Did he wallow in it? No. He definitely recognized it for what it was. He asked for forgiveness. He manned up to the consequences. And you know what? It was over. He got up, brushed himself off, and went about his business. God then redeemed that situation for good. Let that happen in your life. Let it happen in your life. God wants to redeem things that maybe you've been carrying around for a while. And I want you to think about that. You're carrying around something, some guilt that you just won't, you won't let go of. God let go of it a long time ago. You won't let go of it. You won't get up and brush yourself off. God's got, He wants to redeem that in your life somehow. There's awful things in my life that happened to me that I could look at and say, back when it happened, like, how would God ever redeem this? No idea. But as I was able to get up, brush myself off, redemption comes. Redemption comes. Even to the vilest thing, it comes. But you have to give it a chance to come. By, by putting yourself into that place of grace and mercy and forgiveness and really putting yourself into the, the moment of redemption for your life. Do it. You wallowing in your sin and wallowing in your guilt and shame, that's not redemptive at all. Leaving that behind, receiving the forgiveness and cleansing, and putting yourself in that moment of redemption, that's when you really experience the freedom. It appears that this is part of God's plan for us to go through this process. That's what it appears to me. Otherwise, we'd just all be perfect. And we're not. (coughs) And so this is part of His plan for us, is to learn how to do this. To learn how to be a people who live in that kind of mercy, and that kind of grace, and that kind of redemption. So we can really understand what it means. Not only for our lives, but in the lives of the people around us. That, That we can live redemptive lives toward others, too. 
and have that expectation in people's lives and, and have that expectation over them is that they're being redeemed. They're, those moments are being redeemed in them and having that kind of hope and that kind of joy with them. There's something really powerful about it. It's taking the work of Jesus and making it really practical for our life. We're forgiven for a reason. We're we're set free for a reason. There's a redemptive reason that we go through certain things, a redemptive reason that certain things happen in our lives. And whether or not we understand it at the time or, or we can really, you know, see the end result of it at the time, it doesn't mean it's not redemptive, it just means we can't see it. So we need to put ourselves into that moment. So I encourage you toward that tonight. Again, and we're just going to pray here in a second, but again, none of us have done anything as despicable as David did. We just had That's like a Judas moment, okay? It is. It's like a Judas moment. We just haven't done that. But David could ask for forgiveness. David could face the consequences. David could get up, brush himself off, and David could enter into a redemptive moment for what he had done. We can do that. I pray we can do that. Heavenly Father, I, I ask you that we, we find this moment tonight, a moment of redemption. I pray that we, we can enter into this moment together as individuals, but really kind of in the same space, in the same time, of finding that redemptive moment for our life. So God, I pray for us that if there happens to be something in our life that we're not letting go of, something that we're hanging on to, something that we are somehow refusing to let go of the guilt or the shame for, I pray, Father, that tonight will be a night we let go. That we let go and we allow the process that you've ordained to take place in us. A process where we understand our wrong, where we ask forgiveness and cleansing. A process, God, where we receive your cleansing. A process where we place ourselves into that moment of redemption. That's what you've ordained, God. That's what you have for us. That's what you've purchased that, that this is the way it works. And so I just ask you, God, that we would find ourselves in that place of redemption tonight. That place of, of freedom, of liberty, of seeing you take something that the devil has meant for evil and actually turn it to good in our life. I just rebuke the lies of the enemy that would keep people in prison tonight. I rebuke the lies of the enemy that would keep people from experiencing forgiveness and freedom tonight. I rebuke the lies of the enemy that would try to keep people living in guilt and paralyzed by their own shame. And I pray, Father, that you begin to set people free from those lies begin to set people free from those those places of, of of just bondage and slavery to sin. God, you said if we confess our sin, you are faithful, you are just, you will forgive, and you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, I pray that as we confess, we receive forgiveness and cleansing from all unrighteousness. And I pray, Father, that we would really find ourselves in a redemptive moment tonight. We begin that redemptive process for our lives. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Have your way, God. Set people free, God. 
I pray for freedom of heart, freedom of mind, freedom of spirit tonight. That you wouldn't accept that that shame and that guilt. That you wouldn't accept it. We would despise it as much as you did, Jesus. And we would be released in Jesus' name. Lay it down. Lay it down. Lay it down and don't pick it up. Mm. Receive your redemption tonight. It's a real joy in redemption. I pray you experience that joy. <laughs> thanks, God. We give you honor. We give you thanks and praise. And I pray, God, this, this would stick in us somehow. For asking in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. No, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm -hmm. know. He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community, like the comunidad. Yeah, see, so a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. You know, yeah.